0: Dear servants of the king, there is a wonderful scene in perhaps the most famous of C.S. Lewis's, The Chronicles of Nardia, comes from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it starts with a young boy named Edmund. Uh, Edmund has betrayed innocent blood his very own brothers and sisters. He had been lured by the guise of the white witch's magically tasty pastries and it led him to betray his own family and the great king of Narnia, the mighty lion Aslan himself. And because of it, the white witch has a claim on his life. He has become a traitor and so she says, Every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and for that treachery I have a right to kill. His life is forfeit to me. But in the next scene, the mighty lion, King Aslan, intercedes on behalf of his little friend, Edmund, and he and the White Witch, they go off for a meeting which no one else can hear, and when they return the White Witch has released her claim on Edmund. Though nobody knows what happened or how the lion was able to arrange his release, everybody is baffled because Edmund gets to go free. Well, that night, King Aslan, the mighty lion, he wanders off while everybody else is sleeping, or supposed to be sleeping at least. But there's two little girls who can't sleep because they just can't handle what's happened today. And so they go along behind him, following quietly. And Aslan walks mournfully and quietly through the forest to the great stone table where he surrenders himself to the white witch and all of her devilish minions and the white witch, witch kills him on the stone table. That was the arrangement that Aslan, the mighty lion, the king of Narnia had made an exchange, his blood as the great king over all the land for the blood of a little boy named Edmund Pevensey. Now, whoever heard of such a thing? The king exchanged for a little boy, especially a little traitorous boy, something only to be dreamed up in fairy tales, right? Something only for the fanciful imagination of children's literature. Now, you see what the source material for that great illusion in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is... It's this week, it's Palm Sunday, it's Holy Thursday, it's Good Friday. And if you know what happens in the rest of the book, it's Easter Sunday. And where did C.S. Lewis get that kind of king? A king who would lay down his life for the likes of a little boy. Where did he get that one? Did he just dream him up? No, I'll give you one guess where that king comes from. It's the same king that we're looking at today. The one who rides into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. It's a greater kind of king. That's our theme today. A greater kind of king who offers a greater kind of kingship and who also inspires a greater kind of service from his servants. First we see, a greater kind of king, greater than even what the people were hoping for, even what they were expecting. So often, so many of the crowds or even Jesus' own followers and his own disciples proved how they tended to expect Jesus to be like just an earthly king, just a political messiah, somebody that they hoped would restore them to the former glory of when things were great in the good old glory days of King David and King Solomon. So when Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, they think, this guy can feed us forever. Let's make him our king. And they tried to do it by force. Then later on, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they think, well, nobody else can do that. Let's make him our king. And they are happy to turn out and to greet him with a royal welcome with their palms and lay their cloaks before him and welcome him into Jerusalem as their earthly king. That's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was really interested in because he is a greater kind of king. All of that, even their hopes were too small. They were set on something too piddly because Jesus was a king of a totally different kind of kingdom. And that's what he'll show us today on Palm Sunday. The account begins as Jesus sends his disciples To the town ahead to pick up a donkey, and the donkey's full so that he can ride it. And he shows us just exactly what kind of greater king he is because he knows exactly where that donkey is gonna be. He sends his disciples to get the two donkeys. And then he knows the question that somebody is gonna ask them where are you going with my donkeys? And so he tells them the answer ahead of time. When they say, when you're untying the donkeys, where are you going? Say, the Lord needs them, and after that, they won't give you any trouble. And this whole exchange at the beginning of the account is just one more way that Jesus is proving to us that even though he has set aside the full use of his divine power, he is still in very nature God. He is a greater kind of king, and because he is God and king at the same time, well, he doesn't need to be worried about like extending the boundaries of his kingdom with battles. He doesn't need to be worried about setting up fancy gold palaces for himself. Well, he's already the king of it all. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. It all belongs to him. So as a greater kind of king, Jesus is interested in offering a totally different and greater kind of kingship. And at the start of it all, this is what Jesus does. He sets all of his glory and his power aside. Paul tells us he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant. Whoever heard of such a thing? The king lowering himself all the way down and taking the place of the servants for the sake of the servants. Well, that's something only to be dreamed up in children's books or also It's something that happens in the true word of God because that's how we find Jesus today. As he rides into Jerusalem, we can see him being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He rode into Jerusalem, yes, as king, but he also chose a very humble steed, the lowly donkey that would take him into the city just as the prophet Zechariah had said before. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus chose his humble steed for one thing because of the humility of that steed, but also because it would be the telltale sign for the people to see they knew what Zechariah had said they would recognize this is how their Messiah was supposed to come gentle and riding on a donkey, and the people do seem to recognize it at least to some extent because they turn out with their palms and they lay their cloaks in his path, and they have a great celebration. They sing "Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna." in the highest. But now the greatest question I think of this text is this, do the people actually get it? Do they see past the fanfare and the excitement and the hoopla of the day? And do they recognize Jesus as more than just an earthly king, as more than just a political messiah? Do they cry out to Jesus in faith? When they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us, please. Are they recognizing Jesus as the one like who's actually going to save them from sin and death and the devil? Well, I pray it so that there may have been some of those who looked at Jesus and saw them as, as their true king and savior. But it appears also that we get a detail from Matthew, the gospel writer, that would lead us to believe many people probably just did not get it. At the end of the account, Matthew tells us, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, remember how Jesus had often asked, well, who do people say? And they, they always just kind of said, well, he's a prophet, like all the other prophets before. It seems like that's maybe what Matthew is getting at here, that the people recognize Jesus is a great prophet, he's a great teacher, but maybe just that just a prophet, just their next hope for an earthly king. And it seems for many on that poem Sunday, that was probably about the grand total of what they were thinking. And even if they were selling Jesus short, Jesus himself knew what kind of king he was and what kind of service he was interested in offering to them. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the shouts of hosannas and all the praise, we also get a detail from St. Luke's gospel that I don't know that I've so much ever comprehended or really noticed or thought about. Luke tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday this is, and saw the city, he wept over it. You see, for everybody else that day, everything was all a great celebration of the Messiah that was coming, whether he was earthly or whether he was heavenly. But for Jesus, he seemed to see through how short and superficial their praise would be. You see, on this day, on Palm Sunday, they shout, Hosanna to the king! And what will they shout later that same week on Friday? To that same king, they'll shout, crucify him, crucify him. So as Jesus takes all of this in, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, it leads him to tears. This is... The view from 2,000 years later of what the top of the Mount Mount of Olives, looking down through the Kidron Valley and up across toward the city of Jerusalem. And that big gold dome, that thing's not really supposed to be there, but that is where the temple used to be. And that's the site that Jesus would have beheld on that day. As you take in that site, the same sight that Jesus would have had 2,000 years ago, listen to the way this commentator reflects and explains on Jesus' state of mind, taking this all in. He writes, Reflecting upon the sin which Jerusalem was about to commit and the punishment which the city was bringing upon itself, Jesus is completely Overwhelmed. An awe-inspiring panorama lies before his eyes. At the foot of the Mount of Olives, he beholds Gethsemane, where he must wage the last great struggle with the Prince of Darkness and pour out the blood of his sweat. Before him, beyond the Kidron Valley, lies Golgotha, the place of a skull where his cross shall be raised. Within the lofty walls with the many turrets, he sees the great murder city, which shall bring him to his death and so reward him for all his actions of love and devotion and will call down upon itself the most terrible judgment. All this moves Jesus to tears as he rides into the city through the golden gate while the people sing, Hosanna's in his praise. Jesus was going there to Jerusalem to become obedient to death, even to death on the cross. He is going to offer his life as the king for the sake of his servants, even the treacherous ones who are singing Hosanna one day and will cry crucify him on Friday because in this kingdom, it's all about forgiveness. It's all about peace that he will bring to the ends of the earth, to his kingdom. That's what a greater kind of kingdom is about. That's the kingdom of a greater kind of king, and that is the arrangement that he has made in exchange. The blood of the great king of all kings For a traitor like me, that's the greater kind of kingship of a greater kind of king. And so the question that I have for you at the end of it all is this. What will it do to you? As you leave this place today, having viewed the sacrifice that the king of all kings will offer on your behalf Will you leave here unmoved and unaffected just another day shouting Hosanna this morning and later on today it'll be crucify or maybe something even less passionate. Maybe it'll be, well, I forgot and I don't care anymore. No, when the king of all kings offers himself for the lives of us, his servants, It does something drastic. It's something that we can never, ever forget. The king offered himself for me, and so it inspires us to a greater kind of service and devotion to our king because of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. He is the king who conquers kingdoms, not by valiant conquest, but by offering himself, by surrendering himself even to death on the cross for our sake. In this kingdom where Jesus is a greater kind of king, it inspires us to a greater kind of service to our king and also to each other. St. Paul writes in Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing, who became obedient to death on the cross. This is how we show that we get it. We owe our King a great debt that we will never ever be able to repay. And it's not as if he wants us to repay it. We show that we get it when we take on his mindset when we see what he has done for us and we have that same mindset of sacrifice for each other. That's the greater kind of service that our king, our great kind of king inspires us to in his kingdom. Now at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we can find once traitorous Edmund. He's fighting in the great battle for Narnia so valiantly that he comes to the point of being mortally wounded. He comes to the point of almost losing his life for the sake of those brothers and sisters that he once betrayed. What made that kind of change in that little boy, Edmund? Well, it was the sacrifice of a great king on his behalf that inspired him to make the same kind of sacrifice for his brothers and sisters. God grant that to each of us for Jesus' sake, the sake of our great king above all kings who offered himself for us, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for worshiping with us today. We hope that God's word has strengthened your faith. To help us know more about the reach of our efforts here at Monob, we hope that you'll like and subscribe to our YouTube and Facebook pages, and that you also sign our online friendship register uh, to let us know that you're listening today. God bless and keep you.